And thank you, Craig and Jenner and Block, for hosting this event. Uh, the subject of this discussion is the dignity of politics. And we thought the best thing we could do in Illinois, which is rated D plus for political integrity, was to find somebody from Louisiana where they get an F rating. <laughs> Our reasoning is that if Jim Stoner can find dignity in politics in Louisiana, there might be hope for us here in Illinois. Uh, so Jim uh, is going to talk as part of this Lumen Christi Catholic Lawyers Guild sponsored event. And Jim uh, studied at Harvard. Uh, he has a PhD from there. He's a professor of political science at Louisiana State University. Uh, he is the author of Common Law Liberty, Rethinking American Constitutionalism, and also Common Law and Liberal Theory, Koch, Hobbes, and the Origins of American Constitutionalism. Uh, responding to Jim's talk uh, will be Justice Mary Jane Tice. And Justice Tice not only is a wonderful Supreme Court justice, uh, but she's the daughter of a man who served in all three branches of government. Her father was a legislator from 1952 to 1962. He served as a judge, and he played in the NFL, <laughs> which I think counts for the executive branch. <laughs> Next to um, Justice Tice, is Dan Cronin. Dan Cronin also shares a sort of um, amphiboly uh, in that he is a former legislator but now is a chief executive of uh, DuPage County. Uh, he was served in the General Assembly for 20 years uh, before winning election as DuPage County board chairperson in 2010 and then again in 2014. But one of the wonderful things of Dan is that he works across the aisle both uh, down in the legislature uh, and now he's really working uh, very strongly in terms of unifying units of government. It's a passion of his to eliminate uh, waste in government. And lastly is Larry Sufferden, but not leastly. Uh, Larry is my favorite person to talk with about politics. Uh, he loves politics and views it uh, as a dignified and honorable profession and really I think embodies what I think we'll be talking about is politics as a way of serving the public good. So I'm going to invite Jim to give his initial remarks uh, and then uh, we will have responses from my panelists. Let's welcome Jim Stoner. Well, thank you, Tom. Thank you, uh, Mr. Martin, and uh, all of you here at uh, Jenner and Block and those who've come out. Let me grab my water. Of course, I'd written the same joke to start with about uh, coming to Cook County from Louisiana, uh, but I should have known, having met Judge Donnelly, that I would be scooped on that. Um, uh, however, I am going to go back to Louisiana, and I'll say, I don't know, because I don't know yet, how the audience is going to treat me, but Trump's got my back. <laughs> but then I thought, do you really want Trump to have your back? So we'll see. Anyway, uh, the comic setting here of uh, 
of a Louisianian to come to talk about the dignity of politics in Chicago is compounded by the fact that the lecturer is a mere professor here come to praise the political life to people who've stood for elected office successfully uh, when he himself in his adult life has not. Well, I did run for department chair and after losing ignominiously once or twice, I actually won. The vote was 10 to nine with one abstention. <laughs> and I was put over the top by the vote of a colleague from mainland China who'd probably never voted before in his life. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, uh, my errand today is to talk about the dignity of politics. Uh, I was invited by the judge who'd stumbled on an essay I'd written in a volume that I co-edited for the Witherspoon Institute called The Thriving Society, a collection of, of uh, essays headlined by a chapter on the decent and dynamic society by Princeton professor Robert George, and including essays by a number of first-rate scholars that uh, aim to sketch, in the midst of our skeptical or even despondent age, an outline of what a well-ordered society would be like, not as a utopia, though, of course, that's a literary exercise that has a noble pedigree, but as a description of what is possible or even actual in our society when it's working well, with the hope of shoring up the good and cabining off the bad. I came to the editing project late, and after reviewing the chapters, one was on the economy, another on the family, on the university, on religion, on science, on law, uh, I announced to my co-editors that the only thing missy, missing was an essay on politics. Very well, they said, write it. So I guess that counts as a kind of election too. But defending the dignity of politics turned out not to be so easy. I made a list of the arguments against. First, the fact or the perception of corruption, of politicians using their office for personal enrichment or to satisfy ambition, not to ensure justice or promote the common good. Secondly, Politics requires compromise, which is to say that even if you're devoted to justice and the common good rather than just yourself, you're going to have to water down your hopes, settle for less, often much less, uh, than you want or even than you think is right. For sometimes it seems in politics one has to compromise even with evil. Third, politics involves meddling in other people's business or being seen as doing such. And usually it requires stepping outside of one's expertise, and especially to professionals like yourselves or even professors, maybe to artists and scientists. This is a, set, a source of frustration. Why should those who know be subject to those who merely opine? Fourth, I argued politics is inevitably partisan, uh, yet another source of frustration, and even of a kind of dishonesty, since one has to exaggerate one's friendships and one's enmities, working with people that you dislike or maybe even despise, but who share your affiliation, while setting yourself at odds with good people on the other side, even your friends. Finally, of course, government entails coercion, the use of force, attractive ordinarily only to bullies, but a grim necessity to the just. And this is what I thought back in 2014, which seems in retrospect to be an age of innocence on the question of the dignity of politics. 
Now, now between the, treat, the tweets and the uh, vulgarities, uh, as best I can tell on both sides, what dignity is left in political life uh, when each side seems more interested in laying traps for the other, in upping the ante after every trap is eluded and every outrage normalized? Can any root of dignity be found? Well, for those out of power, there's been a lionization of protest as a kind of dignified politics. Protest in the streets, marches, uh, chants, expressions of outrage, and even occasional violence, uh, at least when groups like Antifa show up determined to, as they say, punch Nazis, while the white supremacists emerge with torches itching for a fight. Or, alternatively, there's the politics of retreat, the so-called Benedict Option, which emphasizes the formation of communities of the like-minded, insulated from ordinary politics, seen as failed, which is seen as failed or lost or hopeless, perhaps seeking protection from the courts for their non-engagement, but despairing of political influence in what they see as a hostile polity uh, in a post-Christian age. Now, I don't mean to deny that there can be dignity in protest, the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s is the obvious example, or that there can be dignity in retreat, particularly in monastic communities. But both attitudes, it seems to me, are dignified uh, or noble as political action only when the processes of representative government have been broken. And today, I think, protest and retreat are more likely to be causes than consequences of such fracture. On this point, I agree with uh, a local uh, politician of yours, uh, former President Obama, who in his farewell address and in other settings urged those who are dissatisfied with politics as it is to run for office, not simply to carp or complain from the sidelines, not to grow cynical about what is possible politically, he would say, uh, but to use the tools of constitutional government to achieve political ends. Of course, if you, like me, don't share his politics, and since I speak here under Catholic auspices, I will say that I don't see how any Catholic can share those politics completely. Uh, if so, you might be apt to see his own advocacy of political engagement as cynical and partisan, while putting in place courts and bureaucracies to stymie the political action of his opponents. There is, I think, perhaps some truth to that objection, for the activism of courts in rewriting fundamental law with self-righteous contempt for actual voters is, I think, a deep cause of frustration with politics in our time, at least among conservative Christians. Who will invest his time and effort in forging a coalition to pass a law that risks haughty dismissal by judges? What dignity is there in politics if law is only in the hands of highly paid professionals who dismiss the coercion of, I'm sorry, the concerns of ordinary people for moral order or job security or simple protection as unworthy of progressive thinking in a uh, cosmopolitan age. Well, since I've started to sound partisan even to myself, let me go a little further. Uh, since to defend the dignity of, party, of politics means in some respects to de defend the dignity of parties. And I want to ask more explicitly, what holds good conservatives back from political action? Or 
pushes them away from political careers or leads them to fall short when holding elective office? Let me suggest a few possibilities. First, I think we underestimate the importance of independence, particularly economic independence. I don't think this takes enormous wealth, just confidence in what one has and the ability to quit a political position if necessary or to assume one for political rather than economic reasons. Although I think that the cause of restoring market freedom in the past generation has been a noble one and that the achievement is more precarious than we tend to think. Uh, buying, buying in to what I call market ideology, that every good has a price, has crippled market advocates in politics, I think, for it has led them to think themselves unworthy in the presence of wealthy constituents, and thus has uh, fostered an ambition on their own part to play the game of acquisition, lest they be thought to lack the virtues of success. Perhaps this means that those interested in a political career need to sequence tours in and out of politics. Charles Evans Hughes used to do that. He'd enter politics for a while, and then when the family resources would be drained down, he'd go back to practicing law in New York. And then when they were built up, he'd take another office. Uh, but, um, but that, too, carries its own risk, namely that those in, po in politics will be looking all the time for a lucrative escape. Market thinking, uh, of course, does not ignore sacrifice. Probably every initial accumulation of capital requires it. But unless the dignity of politics is recognized in itself, I think our politicians will have difficulty distinguishing their interest from their duty. Second, I think there's been an emphasis on ideological orthodoxy in conservative circles that has, if not discouraged good people from political careers, frustrated them once in politics. I think I know why this has happened. The trope of the conservative who, given the cultural power of liberalism, can't resist the good press he gains for abandoning conservative positions is too common to need examples. But it seems to me that there's a difference between uh, shared agreement on a common platform uh, and rigid tenets imposed by interest groups from outside whether their focus is taxes or guns or another particular issue. I don't think it has helped the Republican Party to appear captive to Grover Norquist or to the NRA. And I think that part of the appeal of Mr. Trump to voters is that he's obviously not beholden to anyone's orthodoxy, perhaps even his own. Yes, one looks for a certain consistency in candidates uh, as one looks for someone to keep promises. But maybe the latter is more important than the former, keeping promises than ideological uh, purity. Ideological orthodoxy is not a proof of character, but sometimes almost the reverse, I think, for it can, can supply evidence of, a willing, uh, of unwillingness to think for oneself. A third problem seems to me to be a temptation to anti-intellectualism among conservatives. Easy to understand, given liberal dominance in the academy and the press, but nonetheless unwarranted and damaging, not least to those of us who operate, so to speak, behind enemy lines. It isn't hard to disarm the other side on the science question, or at least to stun them for a moment. Republicans deny the science of climate change, they say. 
Maybe so, I respond, but Democrats deny the science of embryology. And they, they scratch their heads a few minutes before they realize what I'm saying with that one usually. Well, of course, tu quoque is not an argument, just an opening. But thoughtful scientists will soon enough concede that scientific findings do not in themselves chart a course of policy action, uh, only at most explain the need for it. Science is neutral between reducing carbon emissions and geoengineering, or is carbon uh, reduction itself a low-key form of geoengineering? Controversies over evolution are a bit different, but there again, what's really at issue are the consequences for human action. Surely man's descent from other animals would not entail, much less enable, us to live like beasts. My point is that there's no reason to fear science or learning. Uh, goodness, many conclusions of sociology these days, uh, and, and of sociology of all fields, a political scientist would say, are friendly to conservative arguments, showing the value of intact families to children's life prospects, for example. I don't mean to counsel hollering junk science or fake news, even if there's plenty of both of those. But I do mean to clear the consciences of would-be conservative politicians who are afraid of being called ignorant. And I do mean to say that uh, conservatives need to go on the offensive, not by demanding ideological balance, as though all knowledge is ideology all the way down, but by proposing more serious intellectual debate and better use of science and policymaking. There's an opening for that right now, actually, as appears in the various campus debates over free speech. For the honest liberals in the academy, I know because they're my colleagues and friends, are feeling the pressure of their sometime allies and are aware of the extent to which their disciplines are singing in monotone these days. In any event, there's no dignity in being a member of the stupid party, but there's no reason to think that uh, one has to be. <laughs> Can I be allowed a, a, a parenthetical remark about theology? Uh, the absence from, uh, of theology from so much of the academy, uh, from so many universities, of serious reflection uh, on God and religion has distorted many disciplines in the humanities, I think, and has left highly intelligent people deeply ignorant uh, of theology as a discipline and even of the fact that it is a discipline. Uh, one of the quiet revolutions in thought that I've observed in my lifetime, no secret to Lumen Christi, of course, because you're part of it, is the awakening uh, interest of bright young people in theology uh, and their commitment to learning theology in the religious tradition in which they were raised and across denominational lines. It's still largely extracurricular, except perhaps in some religious schools, and that's a problem for the dynamic of the university, it's why it's called the university, arises in no small part from conversation across fields of study. At the very least, their recognition of their dependence on one another. Integrating theology back into the university is one of the great intellectual challenges facing the rising generation, I think. Without it, I believe, the university will not be made whole. Okay, in parenthesis, uh, so I've listed three reasons I think conservatives have shied away from politics, dependence on money, the pressure of uh, conservative orthodoxy, and a distrust of intellectuals. And I've tried to suggest how these might be countered. My fourth and final point concerns the law 
And here I want to draw back from a partisan mood, if I could. Although once you're there, it's hard to get back, isn't it? Uh, uh, but I want to draw back because I think that this problem affects us on both sides. Uh, my little chapter in the, on the dignity of politics follows in the book a chapter by my mentor, Harvey Mansfield of Harvard, uh, called The Majesty of Law. Today, on both left and right, law is understood uh, according to the lens or, or seen through the lens of the legal realists as an instrument of policy uh, with nothing majestic about it, except, of course, the setting. <laughs> uh, today, um, let's see, uh, and, and it's valued only for the ends that it achieves, and, uh, or at most for the process of achieving political ends peaceably. To be sure, this would be no mean achievement were it actually reached. But I think that we're seeing in our fragmented, nasty politics that the instrumental view of law leads at best to an armistice, not to peace, to a temporary su suspension of hostility, but not a cessation of it. As a society, I think, we've lost an aspiration to common law, to a shared sense of right and wrong, freely assented to and accepted as governing our relations with one another. I don't think the, pluralist, uh, the pluralistic character of contemporary Society is the cause of this loss of aspiration. America has always been pluralistic. And if we're more diverse today in terms of race and religion, we're probably less diverse in terms of culture and education, maybe even in terms of diet and disease. Even today, juries around the country, I'll ask the judge to verify this for me or not, juries around the country reach unanimous verdicts, if not routinely, at least regularly. And that would actually be impossible if value cleavages were as deep as some say they are. Even when we prided ourselves on a common legal culture, its success probably depended in no small part on limiting the reach of law, first by dividing authority between the federal government and the states, second by leaving individuals, families, and communities ample latitude to live under their own laws, uh, which this may or may not have been seen uh, which, they, which they may or may not have seen as radically different from their fellows. One consequence of this loss of aspiration to common law or of legal instrumentalism is recourse to state coercion, not least in policing, but also in legislation, regulation, and adjudication. We have recourse to bureaucracies to implement ex extreme or extensive social change, then feel betrayed when a different party comes to power and reverses policy. We pass major legislation with bare majorities in Congress, and then we act surprised when it proves unenforceable. We appeal to the courts to invoke the Constitution and reorient our fundamental law, then act incredulous when the defeated proves sullen and resistant, or if we're among the defeated, become sullen and resistant, <laughs> uh, when we reflect that despite the first words of the preamble, the Constitution no longer belongs to the people on matters where the legal elite is determined to work its will. Above all, the instrumentalist view of law seems to me to have undermined our respect for conscience, understood not as an autonomous faculty that, Kantian-like, purports to legislate for all mankind, but rather as the capacity to form one's judgment according to just law, 
to translate the general precepts of law into prudent and moral action in the particular circumstances of your own particular life. I suppose no one will object if my conclusion is that politics has dignity if and only if politicians act conscientiously. The challenge, though, is to restore that expectation in political life, which itself can only be the consequence, although circularly might also be the cause, of persuading conscientious people to enter politics and, one might add, to wear their consciences light, lightly when they're there, not to parade them as some are wont to do, to recognize that political virtue requires prudence as well as justice, not to mention courage and even moderation, to look for points of agreement and compromise as well as matters of difference and choice. Politics gains its dignity from virtue then. We're blessed with a constitution we've inherited that structures politics and summons virtue, partly because it reminds us of higher law, and partly because, or if, we make it our own. Thank you.